Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Three Native photographers take control of the narratives of their tribal communities in a new exhibit at the Museum of the American Indian. The photo essays from the talented photojournalists provide compelling insights into subjects they have personal connections to and relay stories that are uniquely Native. We'll get a behind-the-lens look at the exhibition Developing Stories right after we come back from the news. National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. In Guatemala, the legal struggle to get an indigenous presidential candidate on the ballot continues. Supporters of Maya candidate Thelma Cabrera have again taken to blocking highways and crossroads throughout the country as a way to get their voices heard, while the business community opposes the blockades and electoral authorities say the candidates did not file the correct paperwork. Maria Martin reports. Members of the Guatemalan peasant organization called CODECA blocked roadways across Guatemala to demand electoral authorities allow Maya mom candidate Delma Cabrera to run for president, along with her running mate, lawyer Jordan Rodas. Analysts say this reform ticket poses a threat to the conservative status quo. Thus, the Electoral Tribunal and the courts controlled by the ruling party won't allow these candidates of the leftist movement for people's liberation to run. Cabrera and Rodas are appealing to international bodies and the constitutional court, but for some supporters, road blockades are a more immediate way to gain public attention in a country in which opposition voices are increasingly silenced. For National Native News in Guatemala, I'm Maria Martin. This week, for the first time since 2020, the annual State of Indian Nations Address was delivered in person in the nation's capital. Matt Laszlo reports from Washington that Native youth were featured in the address and ensuing meetings. While everyone's cheering the end of COVID-19 lockdowns, pandemic wounds and losses are still fresh to many of us, especially young people. That's evident at the National Congress of American Indians Executive Council Winter Session. NCAI Youth Commission Co-President Caleb Dash, a citizen of the Salt River Pima Maricopa Indian community, reminded attendees of the heavy burden his generation bore. At the beginning of the pandemic in 2020, I remember going to check on my relatives, my elders, and my friends. The struggle that our people went through during that time was brutal. I myself lost several relatives during that time. My cousins began being more depressed and lonely than ever, but now we need to reconnect. The past is present though. In her congressional response, Democratic Senator Elizabeth Warren praised Interior Department Secretary Deb Holland for her federal Indian boarding school initiative. But Warren says it's time for Congress to approve a commission to explore the scope of the horrors. Even as Native children face new threats, the United States still has not reckoned with its shameful history of cultural genocide and assimilation practices through its Indian boarding school policies. The Youth Commission's other co-president is Yanawi Logan of the Deer Clan of the Seneca Nation of Indians, who's studying environmental sustainability at Cornell. 
We ask that tribal leaders and supporters from around the country listen and embrace our stories, engage in action-driven dialogue, and lend us the support and resources that we demand. The youth of Indian Country are drafting a new narrative. For National Native News, I'm Matt Laszlo in Washington. This week, the Cherokee Nation in Oklahoma announced its registration department enrolled its 450,000th tribal citizen. According to the Cherokee Nation, it now stands as the largest federally recognized tribe in the U.S. Processing a record number of applications during the COVID-19 pandemic, the Navajo Nation, located in the Four Corners region, reported nearly 400,000 enrolled citizens when the tribe was issuing hardship checks during the pandemic. The Navajo Nation did not respond to national Native news by deadline about its current enrollment numbers. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support for law and justice-related programming provided by Hobbs, Strauss, Dean & Walker, a national law firm dedicated to promoting and defending tribal rights for nearly 40 years. More information available at HobbsStrauss.com. A historical master trauma class taught by Dr. Ruby Gibson and staff provides tuition-free online training to tribal members who are therapists, counselors, social workers, and traditional healers. Enrollment deadline is March 24, 2023 at freedomlodge.org who support this show. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. A photographer who chooses the right subject, location, and moment can create a photo that tells stories beyond what words and video can reveal. The work of a photojournalist requires a connection and understanding of the people and places they're focusing on, and Native journalists are uniquely qualified to tell Native stories. The exhibit, Developing Stories, Native Photographers in the Field, features the work of three Indigenous photographers who focused on telling one story they have a personal connection to. Salish and Kootenai photographer Taylor Irvine focuses on blood quantum. Diné journalist and editor Donovan Quintero puts the spotlight on Navajo heroes of the COVID-19 pandemic. And Ho-Chunk and Diné photojournalist Russell Daniels captures Hanisero culture in New Mexico. We'll bring them in to talk more about their work and you can join us on the air. The number to voice your comments is 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. On the line in Salt Lake City, Utah is Russell Daniels. He's a documentary and editorial photojournalist. He's Danae and Ho-Chunk. Russell, welcome back to NAC. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. Joining us on Zoom from somewhere in Columbia is Taylor Irvine. She's a photojournalist and a co-founder of Indigenous Photograph. She's from the Salish and Kootenai tribes. Taylor, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. And speaking with us from Window Rock, Arizona is Donovan Quintero. He's the assistant editor of the Navajo Times and he's Dene. Donovan, thanks for joining us. Good morning and thank you. Russell, please start us off today. Uh, who are the families in your photo essay? Uh, my project is about the, the Hanisoro people and families of Abiquiu. 
Um, it's about their profound sense of community. Um, they've been living in the same Pueblo community in northern New Mexico for nearly 300 years. Um, and the people there today are descendants of the original families that were given the land grant in the middle 1700s. And what led you to focus on, on the Genisero people of New Mexico, northern New Mexico, Abiquiu? Um, it's been a, a many-decade uh, research project for me, um, mostly because I, I grew up with stories of my own Dene ancestor that was taken captive by White River youths in the middle 1800s. And the stories, I didn't know exactly why, um, you know, growing up with these stories, we didn't know why she was taken captive, why there was a sense of slavery. We didn't know what the Spanish involvement was with that. And so over the years, I've spent time researching, uh, digging into these stories into this my own personal story. But along the way, I've found that um, that this was a, an ongoing um, economics of uh, northern New Mexico that started with the Spanish when they arrived in the late 1500s. And uh, so after many decades of research, it led me down a road in the kind of the, the principal community there is Abiquiu. And uh, I, on a couple of research trips, I visited Abiquiu, went into their cultural community center there and met Isabel Trujillo, who I told her my story, my background story. I told her about my research and I, and I asked if uh, I could meet people and uh, start and if I could share the stories there, and they 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 accepted me uh, with open arms because of um, all my research and my family ancestry. The Henisero have a very unique history and culture there in northern New Mexico. How were you able to convey that using your photography? Um, <clears throat> it's it's hard to do a story about history, um, as any photographer could probably tell you. It's a uh, uh, sometimes you're just left with places and space, and uh, um, but interesting enough, Abiquiu is still uh, celebrating and uh, you know their identity, the Hanislero identity, which has been there in particular in Abiquiu for about 300 years, and um, you can see you can see it in the the way um, these people do celebrate their personal identity, see it in the way that the community uh, performs certain dances. During certain times of year, um, they have the El, uh, El Cativo dance, which they do during uh, November, December era. There's a feast day, Santo Tomas feast day, that they do a series of dances that are very particular uh, Hanisaro, uh dances um, that um, <clears throat> celebrate their past ancestors and captives that have come in and out of the community. Um, and so I was able to take, you know, I was given permission to take uh, photos of their ceremonies and their dances. Um, and then I spent time with um, getting to know people in the community and spent three months there in Abiquiu, um, learn, learning the stories and, and, and trying to understand what, what this is all about. You shot all of your images in, in black and white. Why was that? Um, I get asked this question quite often. Um, my first go-to answer is that I'm very much colorblind, uh, red-green <laughs> colorblind, uh, which led me as a child to um, 
I couldn't figure out how to work with paints, oil paints, acrylic paints. So I, photography really stood out at me, to me in high school and uh, really developed a love for shooting film back in the 1990s. And, uh, and I fell in love with making prints in the dark room, all black and white. And, um, and I got really good at that. And so I just have continued to do that. I also believe that um, often color can be a distraction or it can really put um, a time barrier on an image. And I, um, I feel like when you peel that back and you see just black and white, it almost has this X-ray quality where you get to the heart of the matter more. And it, um, yeah, and that's, per that's primarily the, t the two main reasons. Okay. Yeah, I, w I was waiting for that profound artistic explanation for why I use black and white here. Uh, first and foremost, you're colorblind. It's just that simple, huh? <laughs> yeah. Well, Russell, let me ask, I mean, what is it that you want your viewers to take away from this exhibit, all these different black and white images of this uh, culture there in northern New Mexico, the Hanisero? Right. I think um, ultimately... As with many stories from Indian country, we know that the colonial narrative has distorted the, the narrative and has glorified the violence um, of imperialism, um, and which often leads to false, a false narrative. And I think ultimately unburying these narratives is very important. And and I think, and I believe that this is a, a healing process, um, not just for me personally, because it is obviously that, but also for the people in the communities that I'm sharing their stories. Um, so ultimately, it is, it's a healing process, and it's a way to expand our consciousness, um, not just the Native people, but people outside of our communities, expand our consciousness and promote civic discourse, which will hopefully lead to transformation and, and more visibility of indigenous communities. Now, the Hanisero are, are gaining acceptance uh, among Native peoples, and I know that they were added to the Smithsonian book, uh, the Handbook of North American Indians. Do you think that, uh, that your photographs and some of this work that you've done, do you think that will help uh, further uh, acceptance and understanding of, of Hanisero people? in a broad way uh, amongst other native groups and, and scholars as well? Oh, definitely. It already has. I mean, it's, it's been a real uh, privilege and a pleasure to work with the Smithsonian on, on my developing stories project here. And, uh, and, you know, primarily it's, it's a rare opportunity and it's a real precedent for us as indigenous storytellers to be able to have uh, this platform with such a wide reach. I mean, it goes globally. Um, and so it's, it's, it's a real privilege and honor to do that and to be in that, uh, in that space and to have our share our stories in that space because it will echo not just for this time right now, but it will echo throughout history. And I think it's a great place um, for research and I've already seen I've already seen people, you know, I've had people reach out to me telling me that this project's inspired all kinds of art forms. I've seen a, a, a play in Los Angeles where someone was able to reconnect with their Hanisero identity and wrote a whole play about it. Um, I'm seeing more and more uh, uh, books and scholarly, uh, 
scholarly papers being written on the topic. Um, it's definitely a very uh, expanding um, field of study at the moment, and uh, rightfully so. You know, it's just I think over the last decade there's been a lot of uh, you know just reconfiguring the narrative again, and it's it's uh, bringing visibility to to this these communities and individuals. All three of you, uh, our guests today. You went to Washington, D.C., you visited the exhibit, you spoke about your work. What did you take away from that experience, Russell, uh, just seeing all of these important topics and the stories that were told through photojournalism? Um, i got to correct you there. It was all in uh, at the New York City uh, Museum. Uh, oh, I'm we sorry. We were originally Thanks. slated. No, no problem. Yeah, we were originally slated to do a D.C. exhibit as well, but that was all in 2020, then the pandemic happened. But... It was, you know, once again, it was just a huge, huge honor and privilege to to go to to have the government, the Smithsonian, recognize us as um, indigenous storytellers, and to give us an opportunity to tell important stories that have just been overlooked um, for centuries. Really, um, the reception was incredible. The amount of care the museum and the staff gave us was just unprecedented. I mean, we all of us had about 12 people in, you know, individually working on our stories. It was, you know, a priceless opportunity. And I think it was, we really, you know, together we set a precedent um, in, in our uh, photography communities that hasn't been set before. The exhibit is titled Developing Stories, Native Photographers in the Field, and we've got more guests right after this break. Julian Brave Noisecat grew up in a mix of urban and traditional Native experiences that color his view of Native equity. He's a strong voice in shaping policy and the modern narrative of Native people. And he's our Native in the Spotlight on the next Native America Calling. Ah, Cheskel Halt. Think teeth. Medicaid and CHIP cover many children's dental services, including teeth cleanings, fluoride treatments, and fillings. For more information about children's dental health, contact your Indian health care provider, visit insurekidsnow.gov, or call 877-543-7669. A message from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're hearing from Native photographers featured in the Smithsonian's National Museum of the American Indian Exhibition, Developing Stories, Native Photographers in the Field. If you want to join the conversation or ask any of our guests a question about their work, give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. That's 1-800-996-2848. I'd like to bring our next guest in the conversation now, Donovan Quintero. He's the assistant editor of the Navajo Times. And Donovan, I know that you are en route to a story right now, so appreciate you taking the time to to join us from the road. Thank you so much, and good morning again. I appreciate the invite. And uh, yes, I am en route. I just came across a a little accident here. Uh, I I think, you know, just a quick reminder, uh, you know, we're still – in winter season, so folks out there should be extra careful. 
plan ahead, you know, uh, and, and just assume that the roads are snow packed and icy when it snows. But right. I'd, yeah. I'd give that a, put that quick plug in there. So, <laughs> yeah, well, we appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. I always want to make sure our listeners are safe. Donovan, let's talk more about your work, your photo essay documenting the COVID nineteen pandemic. It begins with a picture of a comet. What's the significance? Thank you for that. Yeah, the, the comet, basically, you know, um, from a historical perspective, you know, I, I really wanted to to approach this. You know, I mean, when, when the pandemic first hit, you know, globally, uh, everyone was talking about where it was originating from, uh, what it might be, what it was causing, what sort of sicknesses were people, people were experiencing, um, you know, and us being the Navajo Times, you know, the Nebuchadnezzar, you know, for us. Uh, I'm a traditional person, Navajo traditional person, so I wanted to approach it from a more traditional angle. But of course, I needed to talk about history because we are newspapers. So I started look, uh, doing a lot of research into it, and I had done a story previous to to um, this project that where I, you know, I already had plenty of material to look through. Uh, um, so I started looking at the research, and, and what I found was just basically that whenever um, an event occurs, you know, a celestial event occurs, I'll call it that, uh, in the stars, you know, uh, Navajo people would pay attention to that, you know. And one of those things was a comment um, prior to the 1864 uh, concentration camp era, 1864-1868. Um, basically, they saw this, this, this thing in the sky, you know, um, the comet. And... They would go outside early in the morning, and that that would be the first thing they see was this comet in the sky, and it was, I believe, it was uh, visible throughout the day, and whatnot. So, and it wasn't a good thing. So, and of course, almost simultaneously, you know, when COVID nineteen began, this comet was, you know, was going to be appearing in the sky across the Navajo Nation, and um, so I thought that was a significant. Uh, um, angle to look at, look to, to start my story from. So, and that's pretty much where it began, um, you know, and, and that, that's basically the story behind the comments. Now, when were you first approached uh, to be a part of the exhibit? I was approached, uh, I believe, summer 2020, uh, but by that time, you know, we had already been reporting on COVID and whatnot. I had already been writing stories on it. And so I already had a good collection of photographs and information to run with um, and so on. I had already been talking to people out there and, and, and so on. So um, initially I, I had said that, you know, uh, quite a few of us at the Navajo Times are already covering the, the pandemic. Why not include them, you know, but after a little bit, you know, um, uh, speaking with, um, um, folks at the, uh, the office, uh, it, I decided that, you know, we decided that, you know, it would be a, a good thing for me to uh, participate in the project. Now, many of these pictures document uh, just the different challenges uh, that the Navajo Nation uh, people faced during the pandemic. Which one's your favorite? My favorite photograph? Um, you know, June 28, 2020, right? Uh, it's a very significant day for me. Um, so on that day, there was a, a, a fire going on, uh, a forest fire. So 
So I had been driving through the area, and, and I'm driving on State Highway 264 through Ganado, Arizona. And um, basically, I was driving there. I, I was driving under this uh, walkway, and I saw a family, and they were all riding horses. And uh, I watched them. I slowed down a little bit. I thought it might be an interesting photograph, considering that it was uh, that there was a pandemic going on, and there was a lockdown taking place across the reservation. So I watched them, and all of a sudden, they started um, all kind of following one another across the walkway. And I just stopped, and uh, I waited for them, um, and they noticed, and they kind of waved at me, and I waved back at them, and they went about their business, and and I captured a few images. And so the image that, that is, is including the exhibit is the one of the horses and, and with the family riding their horses across the walkway. And that, to me, is just my favorite photograph because I've never seen it before. Uh, I haven't seen it since. Mm. Yeah, really, really moving to just hear these descriptions. And and some of the other photos, are they, are they from locations and people all across the Navajo Nation? Yes. Um, so basically, you know, a, a lot of the photographs are, um, you know, one, one of the things we had talked about during the, during the discussion on the, about the project was, you know, trying to get into someone's house, you know. Um, but, you know, I advise against that because, because, you know, there was no, there was nothing, there was no, there was no vaccine at the time. Um, and of course we didn't know what this thing was and so on. So, and basically uh, I, I said that wouldn't be a good idea, but what I could do is I could, I could ask whenever I'm out there covering a story, I could ask the family if I could take a picture of them through the window. Uh, but that was as good as, as it was going to get. So, but a lot of the photographs were just basically of volunteers doing heroic things. Uh, delivering water to, to a lot of people who needed it, uh, food and whatnot. Uh, the former Miss Navajo, Shenzhen Parrish, who is now uh, a council person, uh, a woman, a council delegate with, with uh, on the Navajo tribal government, uh, she had she had become very involved in those uh, food distribution uh, projects that were going on throughout the reservation. So, and I just got a great photograph of her uh, wearing a scarf and her her mask. And her hands are just like kind of like just okay. I'm, I'm waiting. Let's let's keep this going, kind of thing. So, um, but yeah, otherwise, uh, it's mostly it, it, it's it's pretty much from all over the place. Um, uh, as as you might know, Navajo Nation is a pretty big area. Um, basically, it's about maybe five to about five to six hours, I say, from west to east. Maybe about two to four hours north to south. So it's a pretty good area to cover, and a lot of isolated communities too, as well. Yeah, I've driven that uh, west to east border trek there. Yeah, six hours on a on a good day when there's light traffic for sure. Uh, Donovan, I, did you mostly focus on on positive stories and images for your photographs uh, during the pandemic, or are there some 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 less positive images as well. What what what, in, what was your thought process in terms of what you wanted to convey with regard to to your people in this horrible time that that they went through? We all went through. Thank you for that. And you know, when of course you know being a journalist, uh, one of the first things that I wanted to do was just try to get the information out there as quickly as possible. 
and inform our, our readers about, you know, what, what this thing could be, what it's causing, how doctors are saying, you know, you could get it. So, and that was one of the first tasks that I wanted to do, that we wanted to do at the Naval Times, is just get that information out there as quickly as possible. Um, but in terms of uh, my thought processes, uh, basically, again, it was along those lines. But after a while, you know, I, I've never had so many of my sources uh, pass on, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. And a lot of my sources, began, you know, were, were, were losing or succumbing to this, this, this horrible disease. And that began to really have a, an effect on me. Um, so I, I began dreaming about it, having nightmares about it. Um, and I, I think a lot of journalists out there can relate to that. Um, so I started wanting to turn towards, you know, like you said, positive stories, uh, stories of, um, you know, heroism, you know, people getting out there. And, of course, those would be the first responders, you know, police. Uh, uh, out here we have community health representatives, uh, CHR for short. Um, again, like I said, Ms. Navajo uh, being out there and doing the good things, a lot of the great things that she was doing as Ms. Navajo. Uh, during the height of the pandemic. Um, but as far as, like, um, you know, just trying to tell those stories through, through uh, uh, with, with the camera, you know, uh, wasn't too hard, um, like you said. Uh, but unfortunately, though, you know, some of, some of those things that they had to do was just uh, investigate um, deaths. They call them um, um, unintentional deaths. So, and, and, and I got, I, I captured a, a moment where, a police officer is fully dressed up in, in uh, a little a, a white suit with a mask. He's getting sprayed down by another police officer, and he's getting ready to go investigate a, a, a death. And it turned out to be a, a COVID-19 related death. So, and things like that. And of course, unfortunately, you know, uh, uh, the first Arizona peace officer happened to be an Apple police officer uh, lost his life to COVID. Uh, you know, I. I uh, during the exhibit, I kind of gave a quick rundown of, of, of what he was, you know, and he was a great person who had been on the force uh, for many years, and he basically was well-loved, you know, amongst uh, towards the pots folks. Uh, he really loved uh, doing that program, and he was in charge of it at the time. So, and unfortunately, he was uh, the first person to lose his life to, to COVID-19. Wow, really, really powerful stuff there. And Donovan, I know that you are a, a traditional person. You're very culturally attuned, uh, Dene person. What did you learn about about yourself specifically and, and your culture overall, just through this whole creative process that you're describing with us today? That's a great question. Thank you for that. Uh, for me, you know, being a traditional person, you know, uh, isn't isn't about you know. Um, it, it, to me, it's about energy. Um, you know, traditional way you know, it's really how I was taught was, you know, when you pray, you don't just lay back down or sit back down and and expect miracles to happen. You have to get up and do something with it, you know, and um, that was the way I was raised, you know, as a Deneh, you know, and for me, this, this, this experience was really about how to balance the energies in me. You know, like I said, you know, a lot of the energies started coming from uh, you know, just hearing of people I know dying from COVID, you know, and, and being so close to it, um, having to 
having quarantine several times because of it, you know, really uh, put this thing in me, right? Uh, to, as far as like respecting uh, who I am even more, respecting life and, and so on, and, and just how beautiful life is, you know, and, and how important um, energy is to me and how I need to try to uh, continue to try to be a positive uh, figure amongst uh, all these other energies that are out there. Uh, and I think that so many people out there, you know, um, have lost loved ones to COVID uh, or, or are still dealing with long COVID, um, you know, and, and they're trying to deal with these traumas. And I think trauma is certainly something that we need to respect. You know, trauma is a very powerful force. And um, I think that, you know, how we are dealing with our traumas uh, is still um, revealing itself, I think, you know. Uh, I think that people out there, everyone is really trying to live with it. I know I am. I, I, I'm doing everything I can to try to uh, pay attention to this experience. What does this mean, you know? How can I, and, it, and as far as like saving language, saving culture, you know, it really ties into those things um, for me. Uh, I've, I've, I, I moved into my vehicle full time in hopes that I continue learning about this energy that I'm experiencing and so that I could try to convey that back to the people, you know, because, uh, you know, my argument is it's hard, it's easy to misinterpret reality, misinterpret what we see out here when we're sitting in, uh, you know, in, in this comf comfortable driver's seat, you know, with the climate-controlled uh, heater and AC, and we're, we're blasting down the road up to 60 or whatever mile per hour we want to go at. So I really want to slow things down for myself, and I want to try to capture these moments in life where, you know, that, that we all take for granted or that we just don't see. Um, so that's what I want to do with, with I want to get back into my photography again, but also combine it with, uh, with stories that, I'm, that I want to um, capture. Well, Donovan, thank you again for all of your insights. Uh, Donovan Quintero, a Diné journalist and editor who uh, has uh, Navajo heroes of the COVID-19 pandemic who are highlighted in this exhibit from the Smithsonian Developing Stories, Native Photographers in the Field. And uh, we're going to take a short break here coming up. And, and anybody with any questions or any comments or just any thoughts that you have about photography, about photojournalism, about this new, really exciting exhibit there at the Smithsonian, please give us a call. We would love, love to hear your thoughts, love to hear your comments, love to hear what you know about photography. Maybe you're a photographer yourself. You've taken a few pictures and uh, uh, maybe an amateur or maybe you're a professional and you've done a lot of photography. We'd sure love to know more about your work and, and what all it entails. And our, the other guests that we have on the show, Taylor Irvine, we're going to bring her in right after this next break, and we're going to learn more about her work. She's a member of the Salish and Kootenai tribes, and uh, she's somewhere in Columbia right now. Really interesting. We're able to connect with her via Zoom. So definitely, please stay with us. Stay with us uh, during this next break so we can learn more about Taylor's work uh, in, as part of this exhibit, Developing Stories, Native Photographers in the Field. And our number, of course, to call 1-800-996-2848.
That number again, 1-800-996-2848. If you've got a question for any of these guests on our show today, Russell Daniels, uh, documentary and editorial photojournalist. He's Danae and Ho-Chunk. Uh, of course, Donovan Contero, assistant editor at the Navajo Times, and Taylor Irvine. She's a photojournalist, and she's a co-founder of Indigenous Photograph. She's from Salish and Kootenai tribe. So three really, really dynamic, creative, gifted artists and photojournalists, photographers who are with us today, and they're sharing the highlights of their work. So please stay with us. The number to call for a question, 1-800-996-2848. We'll be right back. This program is supported by AmeriCorps VISTA. You can kickstart your career by joining thousands of AmeriCorps members in the VISTA program serving to alleviate poverty. AmeriCorps members help organizations make change right in their own community. A service opportunity that fits your ambition can be found at AmeriCorps.gov VISTA today. That's A-M-E-R-I-C-O-R-P-S dot G-O-V slash V-I-S-T-A. You're tuned in to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We are talking with some indigenous photographers about their work. Their photo essays are part of an exhibit at the National Museum of the American Indian called Developing Stories, Native Photographers in the Field. How can photos add a layer of depth to a story that words and film can't? What's the difference between using black and white photos or color photos when telling a story? Give us a call, share your answers and your insights at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Let's bring Taylor Irvine back into the conversation now. Again, she is somewhere in Columbia, photojournalist and co-founder of Indigenous Photograph, Salish and Kootenai Tribes. Taylor, uh, thank you for your patience. And uh, I want to ask you, using photographs to convey blood quantum, that sounds really challenging. What was your inspiration? Hi, thanks for having me. Um, with this story, I think it's something that I've thought of for a really long time. Um, blood quantum is something when you're native, you just grow up with it. It's something that you always think about. Uh, my parents grew up like, you know, you have to date someone within your tribe, otherwise your child won't be enrolled. And it wasn't until I left for college and like left the reservation where I felt like, oh, that's kind of weird. I don't know why that's a thing for us and for nobody else. And uh, it's a story that I really wanted to do right. Um, and so I thought about it in college a lot and I really wanted to do a project on it, but I wanted to wait till I was um, at a level of my skill where I could do it well and tell the story well. And um, that just so happened to line up with the Smithsonian and um, this piece came out. Well, tell us more about the photos. Yeah, so this story was really difficult for me because blood quantum is something that doesn't exist, right? It's not a real thing. It's a number that was put on us in the during colonization. And so for me, thinking about how to make this story about this invisible fraction visual was really challenging. But luckily for me that my family, my sisters and my brother were all expecting a child um, in the same month, which is October. And so when I started this project, I started going through them. My brother's partner is Danae. She's... Um, from the Navajo Nation, and my sister had a partner who was part of our tribe. And so 
going through their pregnancies together um, until they gave birth and following what it means when you have one child who's going to be enrolled and one child who's not going to be enrolled, they live on the same reservation, um, is really interesting to me. And they demonstrated it perfectly through um, what rights my one niece has versus the other niece and how um, how much of a difference that makes for them um, to connect culturally, to connect to the land, to um, pass on traditions, to have access to healthcare, all the things that are tied to enrollment. And um, for me, what was really interesting about this story is that these two babies had a blood quantum before they even had a body and kind of going through what that means to um, tribal people who face the same things. Mm. Blood quantum before a body. So these two cousins, first cousins, uh, and yet uh, their lives will be impacted uh, significantly just simply because of of the number that you described, blood quantum. Yes, and it's not really, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out in the future because this is an unsustainable system. You know, you can only procreate in the same pool for so long before you run into this problem, which is what it was designed to do, eradicate tribes. And we're seeing the completion of that now um, with my generation, the generations after me, where there are no longer eligible um, members to date. Like my tribe, for example, has about 8,000 people. And that's a really small number to try to date within for all of us. And if you take out who is my cousin and who is too old or too young or who is a woman and at least a really small number of eligible um, eligible men to father a child with. And that's not even counting if we get on um, as people together, if they have the same desires that I have, the same lifestyle, it's a, such a small number and it's, um, it's pretty possible. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, Taylor, blood quantum is such a, a pressing topic right now, uh, among native nations everywhere, pretty much every tribe on some level is dealing with this. Many are, are reconsidering longstanding policies. They're changing blood quantum requirements. They're reevaluating what this means. So what is it that you really want to convey to not just individuals that might see uh, your exhibit, but also tribal leaders, policymakers, decision makers with this whole issue of blood quantum? Where, where, where do you want people to go? I think I'm just right now I'm focused on educating people. I don't, I mean, I don't have an answer for sure of what to do for this. I don't think a lot of people do, but I think it's a conversation that needs to start happening or it should have started happening yesterday, to be honest. I think um since it's so controversial there's been a lot of um hesitation to deal with it i think there's been a lot of um a lot of fear politically because it's so divisive it's so insane like and it's what all of our constitutions are built around the system that we didn't put in place but we're forced to operate under and so i think i want this work to start conversations i mean you know, my tribe in 2019 went down for the first time in enrollment in about 20 years. And so it's happening now and it needs to be addressed now. And I think for a long time, we've had our heads in the sands like, oh, it's in the future, it's in the future, it's in the future, but it's it's here, it's right now. For example, my brother's daughter is not enrolled, but she's, you know, she's almost all native. She's Navajo and Salish and Kootenai, and she lives on the reservation. She's going to grow up learning that culture. She's going to learn up speaking Salish, like, and she's not enrolled. And I think now we're starting to see a change because... The people who are in council, um, it's affecting their grandkids, and you can't ignore it anymore. It's its happening, and it's here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Sooner or later, it's going to impact every family in some way, shape, or form. And uh, Taylor, you were out there uh, for the opening of, of the exhibit, and, and what was the feedback from all the viewers that, that saw your pictures? 
I think the most pressing feedback is kind of confusion. Like, why is this a thing? I don't understand why you guys have this. I've never heard of this before. I don't understand. It's completely new to me. And so there are a lot of questions around um, the implication of it, where it came from, why we still follow it if we don't like have to, if tribes have the power to change, why don't we change? And I think that's part of the education too, is it's very difficult. Our whole entire government is built on this one fraction that we didn't even pick. And historically tribes always intermarried. And so trying to go back and trying to reverse a government that's built on one thing is so difficult and so controversial. And I think people are really just struggling to, um, to, to realize why this happens and, and why it still exists and why we don't change it. And I think um, the overall, the overall um, response is just kind of shock. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And Taylor, you're co-founder of Indigenous Photograph. Tell us more about Indigenous Photograph. What's the, what's the mission? For sure. Indigenous Photograph is a space to elevate Indigenous visual artists. Um, it's a place where editors or people who are looking to hire photographers can go and find a database list of Indigenous photographers. Um, for a long time, there was the excuse of editors would love to hire someone Native. They would love to hire someone Indigenous, but they just don't know where they are. And this is a space, this is a concrete website with over, you know, 70 native photographers, indigenous photographers around the world where you can be like, you can sort it by which area you're looking at, which country, and you can go in and find indigenous um, photographer from that area and you can see the website and their portfolio. So it's supposed to help editors and the people who hire um, photographers, um, hire more indigenous photographers and also serve as a space for community. I think for a long time, Myself, personally, I felt very isolated in the industry. I felt like there weren't a lot of natives I could connect with. Um, I didn't know of them. Um, and it was really lonely going through this industry as, you know, like the only native in a newsroom. I know my experience isn't unique. I know a lot of other native journalists felt that way. And so this is a space to have community and to build on that and to swap questions. Like, what are you getting paid? How are you getting paid? How do you do your taxes? And, you know, it's a lot of, like, mm -hmm. barriers that hold indigenous photographers back because they don't know. They don't have a mentor. They don't have... Um, someone in the industry that's looking out for them. And it's a way we can all look out for each other and support each other. I, I imagine it sounds like many of them are, are working as freelancers and that creates a lot of challenges with regard to, to finances and, and everything else. And uh, so it sounds like there's a pressing need, Taylor, for more Native photographers working out there. Yeah, always. Um, I think we have a great start. I've connected with so many people um, through this organization, and it's been so fun to see the different work, and we kind of all have the same common mission, but seeing how we all approach work differently is really cool. I think the industry has a tendency to think of Native as this monolithic um, thing, you know, where we're all kind of the same view, the same, same perspective, and it's so different. Like me, Russell, and Donovan each have such wildly different perspectives on everything, and hiring people based on the different perspectives is something I think will benefit the industry as a whole. And to become a, 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 a photographer who's capable of going out there and getting work, a professional like yourself, I mean, what all goes into this? Because I'm always fascinated by the technology of photography and photojournalism. And is everything shot digital these days completely? Um, there are some photographers that choose to use film. I am not one of them, but there are many that do it. It's becoming quite expensive to do film and it's also time consuming. And so I think within the straight news journalism, most photographers use digital because it makes the most sense quickly and um, technologically. But what's really cool now that's happening is that iPhone photos take really, really good pictures. And so my favorite thing is like the best camera you have is the one you have in your pocket, which is anyone on you. Like if you only have an iPhone camera, do projects. There are projects from photographers in Nat Geo that have 
shot it almost completely on an iPhone. And so I think what's really cool is that photography is becoming more available to everyone, which means we're seeing stories from different perspectives than we normally would where cost is a barrier. Interesting. And uh, I want to ask Russell to chime in on this as well, because uh, Russell, uh, how significant of an investment is it for yourself? I mean, it's interesting how Taylor mentions, you know, the iPhone can take great pictures, but uh, for other photographers, you know, who use more professional gear, I mean, the software, the equipment, all the images you need, it, it sounds like it, it, it costs quite a bit of money to get, get the right stuff. Oh, definitely. Um, it's easy to drop 20 grand on a full set of a, uh, a couple of camera bodies and lenses that you need just for basic, if you're in a newsroom to work, to work, to do stories for that newsroom. Um, but there's also a lot of used gear out there. I don't really like to buy used gear. I'm speaking primarily of digital gear. Um, I don't like used gear that much just because you're not sure where, where it's been, what it's been through. Um, but the cost, it's, it can be expensive to get into, but there are like, like Taylor said, you know, the iPhone's one of the most incredible cameras maybe ever really, you know, it's probably the most popular camera ever. Um, and it's powerful. And not only is it just a great camera, it's like, all you gotta do is push a couple buttons and you can publish an image that quickly. And that's, that's a huge amount of power that so many people didn't have over the last hundred years, 150 years of photography in the history. So it's, um, it's definitely uh, a paradigm shift in, in that sense of uh, communication through photography. And um, yeah. Yep. Okay. And uh, Taylor, again, just going back to the technical aspects and also the, the creativity in the artist. And I mean, what are the elements that, that go into making a really notable picture? I mean, I mean what, what are you looking to capture and, and how do you go about finding that perfect image? Uh, for me, it's all about lights. I will go find lights and place people in it. I think light makes so much more depth to a photo. And so I'm looking for morning light. I'm looking for the mood the light sets. For example, there's a photo of my brother hunting and it's that blue light. And I just like the way that that feels or Najoni in the woods for the first time with some like really bright golden light. It's so pretty. I think for me, light is my favorite tool to use. Um, and I think the second and most important thing to me is the um, the emotion, like the the moment that's happening. Is it a good moment? Is it a quiet moment? Like I, I would excuse bad technical stuff if the moment is so good. Um, and for me, I think those two things make the most powerful images is good light and good moments. And Taylor, in addition to this Blood Quantum exhibit, what other projects do you have in the works? Uh, I'm continuing this project with funding from National Geographic. So that is going to continue. And I think... Um, moving forward, I'll focus more on the before pregnancy parts, um, couples dating, um, couples who are younger than I am, couples in college, how it affects who they decide to date, if it does affect who they date, um, and focus a lot on that. Um, I'm also looking to photograph more sports this year. I really love photographing sports in, in Montana. I haven't really had a huge chance because Montana doesn't have um, any major sports teams. Um, so I think after a few years of really heavy heavy work, you know, a lot of death, a lot of COVID, a lot of, um, a lot of heavy subjects. I'm really looking forward to trying to find more light subjects and finding stories that produce happiness and, and feed my soul that way. 
I saw some of your, your sports photos on your website and uh, I especially like the high school wrestling pictures. Those were super, super cool. Awesome work. And Russell, how about you? Uh, where do you have your camera lens aimed next? Um, I'm continuing work on, on this topic of uh, the Hanisaro on cap, um, captivity and enslavement in the Southwest. Um, the project at the Smithsonian um, about Abiquiu is uh, chapter one. Um, I've, the last few years I've been working on chapter two and chapter three simultaneously, which will explore other principal Anisodoro land grant communities and also um, <clears throat> uh, individuals that live that are descendants of other enslaved people throughout the Southwest. Maybe they're not from a Hanisoro community and maybe they don't even identify as a Hanisoro, but there, are, there was all, all, all levels of captivity and enslavement of indigenous people through New Mexico, Colorado, um, uh, and Utah. And that's, that's the chapter where my family fits in. Um, instead of uh, my ancestor being taken into Abiquiu, they were taken north into Utah territory which at the time was um, um, was shortly was shortly uh, when the when the LDS the Mormon people showed up into Salt Lake Valley, um, and they saw all this enslavement going on and wondered what it was all about. And in the end, they decided to get in and on themselves. And Brigham Young and the Mormon Utah legislator uh, drafted an act that um, allowed the Mormon settlers to and I put in quotes, adopt native people um, into their families to be used as servants. And so my story, you know, starts, you know, in Abiquiu, which is a principal community, goes throughout Northern New Mexico and some of these other communities and also in uh, areas like Atrisco in Albuquerque in Taos um, and focusing on descendants of other enslaved people during that era of Spanish colonial enslavement. And then it adventures north into Colorado and the borderlands there, which really wasn't Colorado or New Mexico at the time. Um, there was also enslavement there during the Spanish, during the Mexican and the American periods. All righty. Russell, course, I'm sorry. We're, we're out of time. We're going to have to wrap up the show. We could This conversation could go for another hour, I think. Big thanks to our guests, Russell Daniels, Taylor Irvine, and Donovan Contero for sharing their contributions to the new NMAI exhibit, Developing Stories, Native Photographers in the Field. Hope you'll join us again tomorrow when we talk with Julian Brave Noisecat, a columnist, filmmaker, and policy analyst. He joins us as our February Native in the Spotlight. Thanks for listening. I'm Sean Spruce. Program support by Amerind. For 35 years, Indian Country has put its trust in Amerind, providing insurance coverage, strengthening Native American communities, protecting tribal sovereignty, and keeping dollars in Indian Country are Amerind's priorities. More information on property, liability, workers' compensation, and commercial auto needs at amerind.com. That's A-M-E-R-I-N-D.com. My precious relatives, think teeth. Medicaid and CHIP cover many children's dental services, including teeth cleanings, fluoride treatments, and fillings. For more information about your children's dental health, contact your Indian health care provider, visit insurekidsnow.gov, or call 877-543-7669. 
a message from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.